So what, what is a Christian's relationship to the world? Actually, on Remembrance Sunday, that has a certain significance. Some Christians think that wars and fighting wars is nothing to do with the church and the church shouldn't do much about it. Other people think that uh, uh, fighting for right and for justice is a good and godly thing. Should the church stand out against the world or ally itself with the world? Uh, many uh, theologians have tried to sort of articulate how the church relates to um, uh, this world. Some have suggested that it's always in conflict. Others that actually if we really understood that the, the church should always be ultimately in harmony. Others have suggested, well, Jesus Christ stands above uh, this world and is detached to a certain extent. Others have said, uh, say, said well, there's just a constant uh, uh, paradoxical tension. Others have said that the church is involved for the, with the reformation of the world and on it goes. It is not easy to define exactly how God's church should relate to this world. And in many ways, Peter captures exactly some of those complexities in his letter. Remember, for instance, right back in 1, chapter, uh, 1 Peter 1, he describes uh, Christians as scattered exiles. We saw that that was programmatic for his understanding of, of what it means to be Christians, that we are Exiles, that is, we do not live in our own land and we are scattered. That is, that, that is we are, as it's described elsewhere, restless wanderers in one sense, without, without owning, owning anything. But Peter doesn't want to um, use those phrases to imply that there's, just, there's only tension between God's people and the world. Indeed, the words uh, an, an exile often in Peter's world could have an, an honoured place in society. The point was not that they were at odds in every way with that culture, but just that it wasn't ultimately their home. They might find themselves at sometimes honoured, at other times treated with suspicion. And the beginning of the passage that Anna read to us just now captures something of that ambiguity that Peter has been talking about all the way through as he talks about Christians' relationship to the world. Did you notice it? Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good, he said in verse 13. In other words, if you're living good lives as Christians, he's saying, no one's going to harm you. Surely you will find yourself on the same page as the world around. We should expect that. But, he says, even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. On the other hand, he's saying, sometimes Christians do find themselves at odds with this world. Why, why does that matter? Why, why does it matter that we understand these things? Well, actually, I think it matters enormously. It matters, for instance, in, in our mother and toddler groups in the, in the church. Overwhelmingly, people love them. 
just occasionally you'll find that people have read a piece of literature that's in the church hall or, or picked up one of the books that's on sale or read something on the website and they take massive offence to us. Have, have, have we as Christians done something wrong? Well, we always need to be open to asking that question. Maybe we have. But actually, we may well not have done. We may be just experiencing something of that, that tension that Peter describes in 1 Peter 3, 13 and 14. Matters as we go to work. Hopefully people respect us at work for our values, for our integrity. But just occasionally someone takes offence at us. Have we done something wrong? Well, of course it's always possible. But a Christian who goes through their life actually only respected by everyone, Jesus insisted, has definitely done something wrong. Woe to you, he said, when all men think well of you. So Peter has been trying to help us to find our place in the world as Christians throughout this letter that we've been studying over the last uh, few weeks. He has talked vividly of our privilege describing us as a holy nation, a royal priesthood, living good lives amongst the pagans. Um, but then he, he has also talked about the expectation of opposition we may get. Live such good lives amongst the pagans, he said, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. Accusation and respect going hand in hand. Last time we were here, which was a couple of weeks ago, we saw uh, Peter instructing us how to, how to conduct ourselves in the workplace, in that, in that complex situation, how to conduct ourselves at home, and how to conduct ourselves as a local church. Uh, but today he's going to go beyond that to talk about some, sort of, some fundamental heart attitudes and convictions that we need if we are to live out our lives in this world where we have an ambiguous relationship with it as Christians. And the first thing that he says is don't be afraid. Even if you should suffer for what is right, verse 14, you are blessed. Do not fear their threat. Do not be frightened. How much of our life is dominated by fear? And most of us at times keep quiet about the fact that we're Christians out of fear. The workplace in this country is increasingly dominated by the threat of disciplinary action if we talk about our faith. And it's scary. There's certainly no call, of course, to, in Scripture to disregard the sensitivities of employers. We must honour them, but we must not fear them. Ultimately, sometimes there will be a conflict between our faith and the job that we have to do. And then the decision we make must not be based on fear. The health worker who, won't, uh, who can't be involved with abortions, the, the employee who cannot fiddle the books for their boss, the student who can't disguise in their, their Christian convictions in their essay, all of those people need to be brave in the end. 
Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. You are blessed. Christians need need the most enormous courage in this world, says Peter. It is lack of courage sometimes that makes us fight too much. When by and large we are to respect and honour the people that we live alongside. But it is definitely lack of courage that makes us capitulate too much sometimes. When we must stand and say, no, I serve Christ. I cannot do that. Don't be afraid, says Peter. Don't be afraid to do right. Don't be afraid either to speak. In your hearts, revere Christ as Lord, verse 15. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Notice You see, again, Peter expects it to be in the context of malicious speech against us. Um, He is not expecting everyone to be a proclamatory evangelist. Some people are that, not everyone is. But he is expecting everyone to be courageous enough that when they're asked a question, they are able to respond. Respond. Always be prepared to give an answer, he says. Notice as well that, of course, a person who's come to ask the reason for the hope that is in us must have noticed something different about us. He does, he's not expecting Christians to be anonymous and undercover as they are out there in the workplace. If your friends or your colleagues at work don't know you are a Christian, then something is wrong. And what is wrong may be that you're too driven by fear. Notice how we are to respond as well. We are to give the reason for the hope that we have. Most, most people think that Christian faith is not based on reason at all. To have faith is just to have some sort of blind faith without evidence or even against the evidence. But the New Testament, as we saw in Hebrews 11, I think, always insists that there is a reason for our hope. And it's a reason we must be prepared to give people. I believe that Jesus lived in, in Palestine, that he died for, his, for, for, for my sins as an innocent man, that he was resurrected from uh, the, the dead as a solid assurance of my future hope. And I believe it because it is one of the best attested facts in historical facts in, in, in the ancient world. There is a reason for my hope. But before we, um, we, we go into battle, um, sort of cocked and loaded, armed to the teeth, we need to see how Peter carefully qualifies that. Always be prepared to give an answer. Make sure that it's, it's a reasoned answer, he says. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience. Gentleness, he says, not belligerence. Respect not dismissing others as ignoramuses, keeping a clear conscience, not being manipulative, not being deceitful, not presenting yourself as as someone other than you are. 
just honestly, openly sharing your faith. A couple of things then that we, we need to, um, to note from this before we move on. One is it seems pretty clear in Peter's mind that actually our day-to-day godliness and reverence for Christ will massively affect our fruitfulness as believers out in the world. In your hearts, revere Christ, he says. That's the, that's the sort of headline over which he puts this. And the gentleness and respect and clear conscience that is required is not something that, uh, that comes um, automatically. It comes from a life that is habitually lived honouring Christ. He expects Christ to be at the heart of our life as we go into the workplace, as we mix with friends, as we're there with family. That is the context in which these opportunities come up. And the other thing we need to think about carefully as we relate to the world is, is, is are you ready to give the reason for the hope that you have? Have you thought through the issues so that you can give an answer when someone asks a question. It's not good enough just to rely on the pastor. He'll do it. I'll drag them along to, uh, to church sometime and he'll give, give the answers. Really, 99% of our opportunities are not that kind of opportunity, are they? It's a moment that we have to give someone an answer. Can you do that? If you can't, why, why, not, why not get some books and read so that you that you have a more firmly founded faith. Why not get some apologetic books, like those books that begin If I Were God by John Dixon, there's various of them. They're very readable. They set out uh, um, uh, the reasons for the Christian faith really quite well. Or at more length, Josh McDowell's classic book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, or whatever. Peter is saying, make sure you've got the reason for the hope ready to give. That's a responsibility of all of us as we're out there in the world. Don't be afraid, he says. Don't be afraid to just keep doing right, even if there's a mixed response. Don't be afraid to speak either. Be ready to speak out in the world, even if there is a mixed response. That is what it means to be a Christian have a security in our hearts that is settled. So it means more to us that we are blessed, as he puts it, for doing right than that we are cursed by some despite the fact that we do right. Don't be afraid. And then the next thing he's saying is do follow Christ. That's something that Peter repeatedly does in this letter. He goes back to the example of Jesus as our great exemplar for, for the Christian life. And here he is, he does it again in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. 
he was put to death in the body but made alive in the spirit. Here is a succinct and, and, and beautifully clear statement about Christ. His death was a substitutionary death, Peter says. The righteous for the unrighteous. That is, that is he, the righteous one, took on our sins because we are the unrighteous one, onto himself and died to pay the penalty for our sins for a particular purpose, to bring us to God, he says. Because it was our sins that alienated us from God and meant that we could have no real relationship. But now that he has paid for our sins on the cross, so we now can be brought to God We can begin a relationship with God now and we can be assured that that will continue into all eternity because when we meet him face to face there will be nothing against our account because Jesus Christ died, the righteous for the unrighteous. But his death, says Peter, wasn't the end. He was afterwards made alive, rose from the dead, as our great assurance uh, uh, that our death is not the end. So that's his little succinct uh, statement about Jesus, but then, then it actually gets a little bit weird. After being made alive, verse 19, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Indeed, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. Ever since the, the early centuries of the church, this, this passage has perplexed people and uh, there have been lots of disputes over it. There was an early creed called the Apostles' Creed, which was written a, a few hundred years after um, uh, the New Testament was written, that says uh, in it that after Jesus died, he descended into hell before rising again on the third day. And that statement seems to be the inference of this proclamation to the imprisoned spirits that's being talked about in verse 19. However, there is nowhere else in the Bible that suggests that Jesus was in hell between his death and his resurrection. And I think the NIV has captured the sentence and made it a little bit more clear in the form that it has um, that's, uh, that, that makes it plain that it was actually after he was resurrected, after he was made alive again, that this proclamation seems to have happened. Did you see, you see how the NIV puts it? After being made alive, he went to made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. It seems much more likely that Peter is, is speaking about Jesus' exaltation after his resurrection to the right hand of God the Father. And at that point, the whole spiritual realm, the Bible says, and, and it seems including the spirits of those people long dead, could see Jesus is Lord. The, 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 the physical world, the, uh, the world that we live in it, can't see it clearly yet, but the spiritual world sees that with total clarity now. And Peter seems to take us to the specific example of Noah, 
You remember Noah built the ark because uh, God warned them that there would be a great flood which finally came and enveloped the whole world. He takes us to Noah because Noah also lived in a day in which people were hostile to God. Noah lived in a day in which people scoffed. And so Peter's saying, you see, those people centuries, millennia before the time of Christ even, who scoffed and mocked Noah. Well, they are now dead, but their spirits see that Jesus is Lord. God will not be mocked. And so by implication, you see, those who mock and oppose and who slander, they too will one day see that Jesus is Lord. In Noah's day, says Peter, God was incredibly patient. Verse 20, God waited patiently. So too today. Hence, opposition to the gospel goes unchecked in our world. So often. But God has not forgotten us. And he points out that Noah was, ex- was saved himself through accepting God's rescue plan. In the ark, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolises baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. So, uh, uh, just to unpack what, what, what he's saying, the flood, he's saying, was in a, in, a, in a kind of symbolic way, an anticipation of what, um, uh, of, of modern day baptism. In, the, in, in that ancient story, you see, the rising waters represented um, being swallowed up in death. Indeed, all of God's enemies were swallowed up in death in a large part, uh, a large part of the world. But in, uh, in the story of Noah, there was a salvation plan. There was a rescue plan through water. It was the ark. And God saved Noah and his family through water. Well, he's saying there's, 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 a, there's a sort of um, a mirror image to that in what we do in baptism. The waters of baptism symbolise a death. Water in the Bible is always... Uh, always slightly scary and threatening death. Or at least bodies of water, large, large bodies of water, rather than what you drink. And uh, so baptism sim- symbolises death, but then rising again out of the water because the baptismal candidate has accepted God's rescue plan, faith in Christ. He's just saying, you see, there's, there's patterns that happen in the way God deals with this world that come up again and again. And perhaps a more controversial thing that Peter says here is um, that he says, speaks about baptism. That now saves you, in verse 21. Does baptism save us? A Roman Catholic teach, teachings uh, use this verse to... To, to justify baptism as being 
a, a, a specifically saving act. They say that the, the very act of baptizing a child um, uh, uh, achieves something in that child's life. Is that what Peter's saying? Well, I, I'm not persuaded that it, that it is, and for this reason. Look at carefully at how he goes on. That baptism that now saves you also, and almost as if he anticipates that someone might misunderstand that phrase. He says, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. The Bible is, is, is pretty clear that it is our fundamental heart attitude towards God which determines whether we are saved or not, whether we are reconciled to him or not. And here he describes it as a, 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 as a pledge of a good conscience. It is the good conscience towards God which is absolutely vital. Elsewhere, the language uh, uh, of the New Testament um, is slightly different. For instance, often becoming a Christian is described as in terms of repent and believe. Repent, that is, change your attitudes, change your heart around so that now you want to follow God and believe or, or have faith that is, that is come to trust in Jesus' death on the cross as sufficient for your sins. Notice in both of those cases, fundamentally, it is something that happens in the heart. But it is also true in the New Testament, and very, very important, that those fundamental heart attitudes always issue in action. The call to repent starts with a change of heart action, but will result in a new pattern of life. And one of the first actions that um, the New Testament expects believers to, to do is to be baptised. And so you find again and again in the New Testament, baptism is intimately linked to salvation. Not because baptism actually saves you, but because baptism is so closely associated with the whole process of coming to faith that it becomes the visible thing that changed effectively the first thing that changed. The person was cut to the heart. I can't see that. But they got baptised. I can see that. And so the New Testament often is pretty bold in describing um, Christians effectively as the baptised. So closely is baptism related to salvation. Not everyone, of course, in the New Testament um, is, um, uh, has to be baptised in order to be assured of their salvation. Remember the, one of the thieves on the, on the cross next to Jesus as he was crucified, um, crying out to Jesus, and Jesus promised, today you will be with me in paradise. His simple um, uh, uh, act of faith on the cross was sufficient for him to be assured of his salvation. 
But uh, unless your hands happen to be nailed to a cross so that you can't be baptised, it seems that the New Testament expects people who become believers to get baptised. Now, that's really important for us to reflect on for, for a minute because it is a little bit controversial amongst us, I think. Some people here, for instance, were baptised as infants and they are uh, convinced that that was the right thing to do. And we have a policy of respecting that in, in uh, the life of the church. People are, there are, can become church members who've been baptised as, uh, as infants. That's not a problem. But what we teach from the front in this church because we're persuaded that it's what the Bible teaches, is that the um, appropriate biblical way is to be baptised after profession of faith. If um, you're convinced of that, even though you were dunked as, a, as an infant, if you're convinced of that really baptism should be for me, after my profession of faith, then I'd encourage you to come and talk to me and get baptised. It's the pledge of a good conscience and you don't want to violate your conscience. If um, uh, you are a believer here and you have not yet been baptised in any way, Let me say, again, unless you happen to be in the same situation as that thief on the cross, you are in an anomalous situation as far as the New Testament is concerned. The New Testament would say, be baptised. There is a baptismal service on the 9th of December. Um, The same day as our church lunch, it will be exciting. And... uh, I would love to add a few more people to that, uh, uh, to that occasion. If you're wondering whether God is calling you to be baptised, I encourage you to think about it seriously. Baptism is so closely associated with being a Christian. It becomes the external mark in many biblical texts. The Bible expects believers to get baptised. Well, after um, unpicking all of that, we must then come back to Peter's main point in, uh, in saying all these things. He has been describing fundamentally how Jesus was prepared in this, in this world to endure opposition and even death before he was finally vindicated. He has, verse 22, gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities and powers in submission to him. That is the model that is set before us for what it means to live in this world. People couldn't help respecting Jesus. He gathered crowds. He was enormously popular up to a point. But in the end, what marked his relationship with the world was opposition, even murderous opposition. And he accepted it, and he died, and it was God's greatest victory. Noah, says Peter, endured opposition, and he was obedient, 
and he was saved through the waters of death. We, he is saying, will endure opposition. But as we are obedient to Christ, we will be saved. That is what we are called to. Most of us, I think, live with a rather starry-eyed vision of the past, at least, and they imagine that um, uh, as things are getting bad now for Christians and there's more opposition, this is sort of something, something strange and weird. Surely Christians, for at least the last thousand years, have been respected and honoured in, uh, in Western cultures and something horrible is happening. Well, Peter quite specifically refutes that. Just jump forward with me to 4 verse 12. Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come to you to, te- to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Don't be afraid, Peter's saying. Don't fear, live courageously. Do the right thing courageously. Speak courageously with gentleness and respect, but speak courageously. Follow Christ. There was an early Christian letter. Nobody knows who wrote it. It was written to a man called Diognetus. Um, perhaps in the second century or so, uh, describing Christians in the early Ro- in the Roman world. It's very interesting. Christians, he says, cannot be distinguished from the rest of the human race by country or language or customs. They don't live in cities of their own. They don't use a peculiar form of speech. They don't follow an eccentric manner of life. They live in their own countries but only as aliens. They share in everything as citizens and endure everything as foreigners. Every foreign land is their fatherland and yet to them every fatherland is a foreign land. They busy themselves on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They obey the established laws, but in their own lives they go far beyond what the laws require. They love all men and by all men are persecuted. They are unknown and still they are condemned. They are put to death and yet they are brought to life. They are poor and yet they make many rich. They are completely destitute and yet they enjoy complete abundance. They are dishonoured and in their very dishonour are glorified. They are defamed and vindicated. They are reviled and they bless. They are affronted and they pay due respect. When they do good they are punished as evildoers. Undergoing punishment they rejoice because they are brought to life. They are treated by the Jews as foreigners and enemies and are hunted down by the Greeks. And all the time, those who hate them find it impossible to justify their enmity. T'was ever thus. It is complex and difficult living in this world as a Christian. We need hearts that are absolutely firmly 
securely rooted in Christ. So that as we serve him and as we follow him, there will be no shock, no horror if things go wrong. But only the, the, the sense of deep security. Because I'm following Christ, I know I'm blessed. And so I can rejoice. And so I can keep loving and doing good and serving. Christ suffered in that way and was made alive. So we must follow him.